Welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology, and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Mark Spencer about the struggle to stop the destruction of the South River Forest in Atlanta, Georgia, as part of the construction of the largest police training facility in the US. We'll also discuss what the lens of public health provides in understanding the obscene violence and failure this project represents. Mark Spence has an MD from Georgetown University School of Medicine and a BS in Neuroscience from Johns Hopkins University. He works as an internal medicine resident physician at multiple hospitals across Atlanta, as well as being part of a coalition that builds support among healthcare workers for community-based movements like Atlanta's Communities Over Cages campaign to close Atlanta's detention centre, as well as Stop Cop City. In this conversation, Mark gives an overview of what's happening on the ground with regards to the attempt to build this massive police training facility, which has been dubbed Cop City, as well as describing the movement that has formed in a response to this as an attempt to prevent the expansion of police powers in Atlanta. Mark also explains how his work as a healthcare worker informs his politics, and why Cop City represents a total failure in addressing the problems faced by the people in Atlanta, and what the resistance movement can teach us about building a system that actually meets people's needs. Finally, before we get into the episode, I have a very exciting announcement. On May 25th, Red Medicine will be hosting a night of readings and discussion at the Horse Hospital in London. Um, I'll share more details about who's going to be speaking at the event in coming weeks, but if you're able to make it to London on that evening, please mark that date in your calendar and come along. It's going to be an extension of the discussions on the podcast with a specific focus on how we might politicise our individual and collective experiences of illness. You can head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash redmedicine and sign up for a £1 a month donation which will go towards supporting the podcast as well as funding this and hopefully future events. Thanks again for listening and now on to the conversation with Mark. For people that have little to no awareness of what Cop City is, what the Stop Cop City movement is, um, can you just explain what this project is that's being dubbed Cop City and kind of where it's where it's emerged from, really? Like, where's it come from? Yeah. So, uh, just to introduce myself and and why you know this project is 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 relevant to me. Uh, I'm an Atlanta-based physician, and Cop City is the new police training facility that was proposed in the spring of 2021, kind of out of nowhere, after what was clearly a lot of backdoor meetings between administration of the city and the police foundation. And ultimately, in the summer of 2021, in June, it was put up for a vote before the city council. And because of 
immediate backlash and opposition. This uh, vote initially was delayed all the way until September. Um, and during that time period, there was kind of the facade of public engagement through a few different Zoom listening sessions where even, um, you know, public comment and chat was disallowed. It was basically a PowerPoint presentation as to why Atlanta needs this new facility. And uh, disappointingly, you know, in September when they did vote, it was 10 um, votes in favor and four votes against from the Atlanta City Council. And um, this came after what was probably, I think, the first or second most public engagement and comments ever um, to date for the Atlanta City Council. And so in only two minute increments, there was over 17 hours of public comment, and these were all tallied up together. And ultimately, um, around 70% were against the new training facility, Cop City, and 30% were in favor of it. And if you really you know, wanted to break down that 30%, a large majority of it was um, police and firefighters who would be getting this new training facility. So even from the beginning, this project has been essentially entirely anti-democratic, really no true sense of, of inclusion and input from the community. And, you know, where this would be located is in um, Atlanta, Georgia, which is in like the 30th, 35th largest city in the U.S., so it's not the biggest, but it's definitely a large city. There's about you know 500,000 people that live in this city. And um, why it's called Cop City is really because this training facility initially proposed was going to take up 380 acres of what's known as the South River Forest. And included in this urban training center was going to be quite literally a mock city, which is where Cobb City come from, with, you know, fully equipped with a fake bar and nightclub. And in addition to that, they were having, you know, shooting range, helicopter pad, a 40 acre horse park, um, you know, an on-site burn tower for the firefighters, you know, many, many things that not only would contribute to worsening air quality, um, noise pollution, but quite literally destroying the um, environment that's there. So ultimately, <laughs> since the beginning, has had a significant amount of opposition. Um, and that's kind of, you know, the very basics in the beginning of the breakdown. You know, the, the cost of this facility is supposedly going to run around $90 million. And this kind of gets to like another few problems with the facility is that two thirds of it initially is going to be funded by uh, what's known as the Atlanta Police Foundation. And this organization, which exists in a lot of large cities around the U.S., uh, with Atlanta's Police Foundation being one of the actually larger and more powerful, is essentially a fully unaccountable group that is built of people that um, provide funding for specific police projects like more surveillance cameras, things like a cop city. And the players in it are fully funded by large corporations and wealthy donors. So it's essentially a way for corporations to funnel money into the policing apparatus completely outside of any means of democratic accountability. And so that's where they fundraise $60 million for it. And the remaining 30 is going to come from taxpayer money or from the city. And we know that this is really only the tip of the iceberg if they were to actually build Cop City, because that's only the initial cost to build it. Um, not only will those costs spiral out of control, as these types of projects always do, but then the maintenance and upkeep of what's going to be such a large, um, you know, urban training ground, actually one of the 
largest in the United States, if not the largest, despite, you know, the relative small size of Atlanta is going to be um, quite costly. And in fact, despite the fact that they have barely even started construction, legally, they're not supposed to have started construction, even though they have started mapping out some things on the ground, they're spending what just was reported yesterday around $41,000 a day of city money for security of the site. And so that's kind of where we're at now. Yeah. And I think it's really key as well to highlight the significance of the forest. And I guess there's that that forest is significant in a number of ways. Um, historically, there's the history of its kind of expropriation from native communities. It's then used as a plantation, later as a prison farm, which is sort of represents the shift from slavery to prison system form of slavery that it kind of morphed into. Could you talk about the significance of the forest for people in Atlanta and in that part of the states more generally? Like what, not just that significance, but then also like what role the forest plays in people's just everyday life? Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you mentioning the history that I kind of glossed over. But th this forest is known both as the South River Forest in the south part of Atlanta, but also known as Wilani, which is the name of the Muscogee Creek Nation, who was you know forcibly displaced in the early 1800s uh, by the United States settlers. And this, this forest is known to be, in, in 2017, there was a very large environmental report done for the city of Atlanta about the importance of our tree canopy and our forests. Atlanta is actually known as a city in the forest in the United States because we have one of the best tree canopy covers. And given our location in the south of the U.S., without that cover, you know, extreme heat is a huge problem. And, and average temperatures in Atlanta are already rising at a faster rate than in other areas around the United States and the world. And so despite the fact that the South River Force, Wilani, was deemed one of the four lungs of the city, they're essentially ready to destroy um, the entire forest to build Cop City. And, you know, the, the reasons that that's problematic outside of even the increase in, in police um, footprint, uh, like you said, related to the forest, is that we're losing tree canopy, which is going to increase heat. There's a river um, that runs through this forest as well that is one of um, the most neglected um, rivers in the U.S. that needs to be rehabilitated and taken care of. And part of that is because while this area served as a prison farm for a prison lab labor camp, it said essentially there was a lot of dumping and pollution around there as well. And so with the forest destroyed, flooding will become a much larger issue, as well as runoff and storm runoff into the water, which will contaminate nearby water supplies, which is predominantly a black working class neighborhood. And the air quality as well, not only because they'll be doing things like destroying an entire forest, but doing burn towers and all of the other types of activities that will be cre um, creating to the environmental pollution of the air in addition to the destruction of the forest yeah yeah and you've touched on it a little bit but the scale of the facility is is kind of obscene like i've heard people talk about it as like disneyland for police officers it's like um and yeah so could you talk about the scale i know there's been some different reports about the exact size and the projections of how big it's going to be range anywhere i think from 80 acres to around 300 acres, um, neither of yeah. which are great, but could you talk about the 
the the sort of massive transformation that will happen to the forest if this does get built definitely it's it's hard to even conceptualize just how big that they're proposing this facility to be initially the lease was proposed as 380 acres and to put that in context you know the Atlanta police force is around 2000 officers and if you look at New York it's around 40,000 officers and the New York's training facility is about 30 acres so you're talking about over 10 times the size of a training facility for what is essentially 120th the size of the police force that is absolutely insane and only because of the very very swift backlash from a huge amount of environmental groups but also police um, abolitionist groups and other environmentally concerned and local neighborhood associations they almost instantly cut it down to 150 acres and essentially have been just trying to get away with as many acres as they can since so as the plan stands now there's 85 acres that would be set aside specifically for the destruction of the force and the police training facilities while another 75 or so would be supposedly um you know retained as green space but still part of this compound and really there's no accountability for how they'll use that at any sort of like future date um we already know that they had plans to build these other types of things like like roads to practice high speed chases and a 40 acre horse farm so like we can't really based on the past two years of, of of the Stop Cop City movement, we can't really trust them with any sort of accountability as to how they would use the rest of the 75 acres or that the question that's taking place on their 85 won't have spillover effects into the local community and the rest of the force, which it obviously would. Yeah, yeah. And so you've already touched on it there, but what, what has the resistance looked like? I mean, it seems like... Um, it's a coalition of people with different investments, as you say, ecological, anti-police and community kind of neighborhood organizing. But what has that resistance looked like, um, both in the terms of the forest defenders and people actually in the forest and then the wider network of support and uh, sort of solidarity around that? Yeah, I think that something that has made people so interested from outside of Atlanta in this movement is just such the, the wide coalition that is pulled together. And that's something that is is quite rare, but, you know, quite powerful. And I think the, the people that catch the most attention is the forest defenders themselves, um, who, you know, essentially since 2021 for eight for over 18 months there's been people in in tree campouts and in tents and living um you know within Wilani forest and keeping them from essentially knocking down trees and clear cutting and starting some of this construction and it's despite some of the media accounts it's been wildly successful because to date there's been very very minimal construction and not only you know have they gotten a huge amount of not only national but global recognition for their environmental activism they've put off the delay of this and inspired many others so you have a you know on, on the one side you have people taking more radical direct action and then you have a huge amount of environmental organizations from within atlanta from within the united states globally that are speaking out given the climate crisis and just even the idea of destroying 85 acres um, is is just absolutely ludicrous. And, you know, there's other people that uh, are coming at it more of, you know, not wanting to expand the footprint of state sanctioned violence and policing, knowing that this doesn't 
bring us what they're telling us it brings us. And so there's been a large movement to try to get people to understand, despite the relentless waves of, of decades of propaganda telling you that policing is public safety, that those two things are actually not things that that work together and that policing does not bring public safety. And so there's been, um, you know, opportunities for these movements to learn from each other and really to understand kind of the intersectionality of these types of struggles. And that, you know, knowing the history of policing and police repression allows you to see that, you know, any future, you know, resistance against more environmental destruction, against any sort of movement for equality, whether it's racial justice, you know, LGBTQ rights, women's rights, labor rights, like the police are always on the opposite side, and they are the ones that repress social movements. And at this point, it's gotten to the point where, you know, the state is charging up to 20 of these forest defenders and other protesters with domestic terrorism, you know, laws that were initially built to essentially fight terrorism and passed under the guise of fighting against right wing and far right, um, you know, conservative domestic terrorists, but now are, as as history tells us, usually applied then to people who are trying to protect the planet and um, trying to build a better world for, for everyone. Yeah, totally. And it- yeah, I mean, it's really good to hear about the sort of broad coalition. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to cover this is because as a struggle, it, it it really clearly highlights the interconnectedness of all these questions about ecology, racial capitalism, expanding carceral state and questions of health. Um, and we'll move on to how all this helps us think about medicine and healthcare in a moment. But before that, we, we obviously have to talk about the police repression that has happened you, you know, with the anti-terrorism charges that are being brought on protesters uh, and then also the um, murder or assassination of um, Tortugita, who was a forest defender who was killed by police gunfire in very suspicious circumstances uh, and, and very uh, opaque uh, kind of... Um, oversight about what actually happened yeah uh so since 2021 and the passing of you know the bill and and people starting to learn what was going to take place with cop city uh, essentially through the year of 2022 as the coalition has grown broader as public support has grown louder um police repression has has grown right in tandem with it so it's it started you know more so with aggression and arrests at just public demonstrations and marches and ultimately what it's culminated in is um, the police going in for sweeps of the force trying to remove forest defenders and most recently in january as you you know were mentioning um you know the georgia bureau of investigation and georgia state state troopers joined kind of the local police forces and went into the forest um essentially looking for violence and they found it and murdered tortuguita who was a 26 year old uh forest defender and he was shot over 13 times and you, of course you know there's there's no body cam footage apparently from the georgia state troopers that murdered him and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, their joint task force partners, are the ones who are apparently conducting an independent investigation, which makes absolutely zero sense, as these two organizations are are essentially one and the same from the same state-run departments. And, um, you know, what came out of a few weeks ago 
is that the Atlanta police department did have body cameras on. They weren't in this exact location, but not only could they hear the initial gunfire, which did not really mesh with the story that Georgia state troopers were providing, but they also are heard on camera discussing the fact that they thought there was spending fire involved and that that may have been the reason that a Georgia state trooper um, was was also shot and and injured in that operation into the forest. And so, you know, some of these answers we may never have given the lack of accountability and transparency of these organizations. But what we do know is that um, the reason this happened is because the police and political elite and corporate elite have decided that they're going forward with this project, no matter the dissent, no matter the amount of people and public opposition, no matter the environmental consequences. And so this is the natural end of you know, what policing is used for. When you can't get something done democratically, they'll use state violence to make it happen. And so they went into the force looking for violence and and that's what, what they found. And, mm. you know, since then, it's really been quite perverse. You know, the city has now tried to really ram through the project and kind of say enough is enough. This is turning into, you know, all this violence. But um, thankfully, a lot of, you know, the city and community is seeing through that. And yeah. what it's actually done is, is further galvanize support for the movement in understanding how these struggles are connected and understanding how these, you know, so-called leaders are fully unaccountable to any sort of um, public input and feedback. Mm. Yeah. So let's kind of link this into how we might think of the kind of politics of healthcare and medicine. You're someone who works as a physician and works in healthcare. Um, why why is this struggle sort of important to you like why 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 are you committed to this political struggle as someone who is spending their life concerned with making sure people get the care that they need yeah i think that the easiest starting place to kind of understand um not why not only myself but i believe that anyone involved in you know healthcare public health type um you know service industries should understand and be parts of movements um you know against police expansion against environmental degradation and it really comes down to the simple fact that when you break it down around 80 percent of your health outcomes come from what's termed the social determinants of health so really this is the conditions where you are born where you grow up whether it's the air that you're breathing do you have access to adequate shelter food, transportation, job opportunities, and educational opportunities? Are you exposed to violence in your community? Are you exposed to trauma? All of these things, um, again, make up around 80% of your health outcome. While seeing someone in the hospital or clinic at best is really only providing about 20% of that person's overall health and well-being. So when you just look at it from that basic fact, then you realize that the, the brunt of our efforts in organizing cannot be to make small tweaks to how we deliver care in the clinic or hospital or try to make one medicine you know, more affordable in the profit-driven and exploitive American healthcare system. Like that is an important struggle, but not nearly as much as really getting to the root causes of what is mass preventable death in the United States. And that is basically why, you know, I encourage any um, physician, nurse, healthcare worker in any field to, to be, you know, more politically educated and engage in these struggles, because this is really where people's health outcomes are coming from. Mm-hmm. And um, could you talk a little bit about how you see 
these structural issues kind of manifesting in in the day-to-day health issues that you see with patients in the hospitals that you work with in Lanta? I mean, how can you see the manifestations of these issues in people's everyday experiences of illness and sickness? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's one of the unique things about healthcare is the, in the clinical setting is having this window into somebody's life. And really, ultimately, what you're seeing is all of the policy failures from the local, state, and federal level to not meet the needs of these people. And, you know, not one time has a patient come in to my clinic and said, you know, I really need more police in my neighborhood. (laughs) Like, but there's been many times that they say, I can't afford rent, or I don't even have shelter, and I'm living on the street, or I can't afford my medications, or I have no way to get to my doctor's appointment, because we underfund public education, while we try to spend 90 more million on a cop city. And Mm. so all of these other reasons, you know, no, no access to healthy food, um, exposure to massive amounts of trauma and violence in their communities, due to severe unrelenting conditions of poverty, no job opportunities, underfunded public education. And so all of these really gets to the opportunity cost of funding something like Cop City, where you have no evidence that this will better the lives of the working class and poor in the city. Mm -hmm. And on the contrary, you have all of these investments then that go underfunded. So we have breaking down infrastructure, we have a crumbling hospital. We have actually a hospital that just left the city. And so the the crises that our patients are facing are many. And what we do know is the police will not solve but exacerbate all of these needs. And, you know, it, it is true that interpersonal violence in, in communities is an issue. But what we reject as, you know, people that understand evidence and data um, is that people are asking for safety and and you keep telling them that police will deliver that but that is is ultimately untrue and history tells us this and provides us that point so when people ask for safety they need to stop being told all you need is more police all you need is a bigger more cruel jail all you need is longer sentences because we know based on 40 to 50 years of data uh, in America's experiment in mass incarceration that this will not provide the outcomes that you're seeking, right? Like if you look at the United States, it's unprecedented in history how many people that we're locking up. And if you look at Georgia in particular, we incarcerate more people in Georgia at a rate that is five to 10 times anywhere else in the so-called developed world. And if you add in the probation and parole, there's not any place in the world that has as many people under carceral control from incarceration, probation, and parole than Georgia in the United States. And so if that was to bring us safety, and you know, obviously that system comes at a tremendous cost, yeah. then we would be the safest state and the safest country in the world, but we're actually decidedly not. And what's interesting about Atlanta is that Atlanta consistently ranks as the most unequal or the second most unequal city in the United States. And these things are not divorced from each other. You know, the further investment in policing is an investment in the status quo. And when you understand how they operate to repress social movements, you understand that they work for the wealthy and well-connected 
and they they work to maintain the status quo. And so that is why, you know, when we're seeing patients that are abandoned from for any sort of public investment in their most basic needs, that we reject the status quo in saying that this is not tenable for the vast majority of people. And so any sort of investment into policing infrastructure is not something that we support. And what we do support is an investment in actual public safety, which by the way, is the same investments that meet people's basic needs. And one example of that being that providing access to healthcare through expanded insurance, because we don't have universal healthcare here, yeah. increases, you know, crime rates more so than any sort of, you know, additional police officer or cop city palace or anything like that. And so just the very basic nature of providing someone access to healthcare um, can actually help create healthier and more thriving communities. Yeah. And let's flesh that out a bit as well, because you're already kind of explaining it a little bit, but could you maybe just go into detail a bit more about the the, the process that happens where when people aren't able to access care, um, the predatory carceral system often criminalizes them. I mean, talking about uh, patients that you work with who, for example, are finding themselves without places to live, without um, adequate access to medication that they need. Uh, especially people of color, racialized people, very often when they're not able to receive the treatment they need, they are criminalized by by a predatory system that wants to extract value from them as um, as prisoners, really, as in, in the system. I mean, how how do you see that kind of unfolding on a day to day on a day to day scale? Like, could you explain to people that might not necessarily be familiar with how that unfolds, like what that usually looks like on a on a human level yeah i think that the the root of this gets to again where my analysis and why we care about these issues differs from the politicians the police and what their focus is and that has to do with the difference between crime and harm right mm. and so crime is a politically constructed category that allows you to criminalize somebody for an action that they take whether that's putting a specific substance in your body like marijuana or heroin or alcohol or whatever it is, um, or acting a certain way or being in a certain place. And harm is obviously, you know, something that's actually harmful. So we really only care about harm. And some sometimes these two categories overlap, but mm -hmm. oftentimes they don't. And oftentimes the most harmful actions, such as, for instance, destroying a forest is not actually criminalized, but it's actually endorsed and funded by the state, right? Yeah. And so the destruction of waterways, the destruction of, you know, a, a massive train derailment that just happened and polluted an entire river in the United States will not result in any sort of criminal penalties for the company that was negligent, you know? It's, and so that's, that is the branch point that we like to focus on. And so when you look at how the political class uses crime as a weapon to control and dehumanize entire populations. What you need to understand about the criminal punishment system in the US is that it is overwhelmingly full of people that come from crushing and crippling poverty. And the average income of people in our jails is typically below $15,000 a year. So that's just telling you kind of where people are coming from upfront. And what we do know is that we've decided to invest in this punishment bureaucracy at the expense of 
you know, investments in any sort of community level of support. So certain populations that find themselves vastly overrepresented uh, in, in, in the criminal legal system is not only houseless people, but people with mental illness. And, you know, the, the three largest places that contain mentally ill people in the United States with untreated mental health struggles are, are jails, are large city jails. And it's not that they're getting actual therapeutic treatment there. Um, to the contrary, usually they're being further traumatized, but we have a complete absence of community-based mental health care. And in line with that, um, people that use substances and have any sort of substance use struggle, which oftentimes goes hand in hand with, you know, unaddressed trauma, poverty, end up in our local jails and in our prisons um, for oftentimes doing what is one of the only available means of coping with unrelenting, you know, crushing, profit-driven capitalism in the United States while being provided absolutely no means of, of care to address those issues. And so these are the types of populations that end up overrepresented um, behind bars in the United States where what they're met with is further um, trauma, sexual and physical violence. And um, most of them end up returning home over 95% of people. And are they coming back, um, you know, healthier and and better and ready to engage with society? Um, no, of course not, right? They've been absolutely destroyed by the state. And what we know about American prisons is that spending one year incarcerated in American prison takes on average two years off of your life expectancy. And so, these are not places that, you know, have any sort of the same values of, of healthcare providers, of public health officials. And what they do is hide behind such little amount of accountability and almost total absence of transparency that people don't understand the extent to which this is being done. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm just thinking as well about the, the kind of broader struggle for... I guess what would be Medicare for all in the United States as well and, and how that links to this. I mean, do you get a sense from kind of people that you work with that there isn't there is a big opportunity to kind of politicize the work of doing healthcare? I mean, is that something that struggles like what's happening around Cop City now provide in terms of politicizing people's awareness of both receiving and providing um treatment in, in the healthcare system? Yeah, I mean, this is really the one of the only paths forward for universal health care, you know, one of the biggest coalitions of people that's missing in that movement is people in healthcare, and mostly from the physician side. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the reason that is, is because they're essentially getting a, a payoff to, um, you know, be incentivized in maintaining the profit driven system, which inflates the wages of a number of um, specialist physicians in the US compared to other countries. And you know, disincentivizes people to work in preventative care and primary care. In the U.S., we have, you know, about a third of people in primary care, whereas in a, you know, what's thought to be in more ideal healthcare system, which other systems um, do a better job, you should have about two thirds of people in preventative and primary care. And so all of our ratios are completely flipped. And despite that, you know, healthcare in the US is twice as expensive per person. And we still place last in almost every single health outcome um, compared to other wealthy nations. 
And so the politicization and political education of physicians is sorely, sorely needed. And obviously, you know, given what we're talking about, like that is one of the main ways that from the healthcare standpoint, we could actually express true solidarity with our patients and understand and how we're able to meet their meet their needs through at least providing healthcare and all the other ways that a universal healthcare system could stimulate growth in these other care networks. And so you know, it's it's unfortunately sorely lacking. There's definitely a movement for it, but it's it's not quite big enough. And I think that, you know, that's that's one of the biggest things is really looking at ourselves in the mirror and our colleagues and um, saying, you know, if we really care about this, if we really care about that 80 percent that's driving health, then then we need to do something about it and stop pretending that that tiny sliver of the effect we can have on a patient's life in the clinic is good enough. Like there's a lot of patting ourselves on the back um, while turning a blind eye to the neglect and abandonment that's taking place on on our name um, by the public. Mm, totally. Um, one of the final things I'll ask you about before we kind of finish off by talking about the sort of ongoing resistance and, and, and how people kind of engage is we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the audience of this podcast and how it is split uh, across a few different countries. Um, and I just wondered like how, how we might contextualize this in and as part of as a, an internationalist struggle because the, the wealthy capitalists that are funding this and are going to benefit from this um, are, are organized internationally. You know, they, they operate across borders and same way that American healthcare companies are trying to lobby to make huge amounts of money off of privatizing healthcare in the UK are the ones that need to be challenged to provide Medicare for all and go further in the US. So, I mean, could you talk a little bit about how you see this as part of an international struggle and, and, and how important it is that situations like what's happening in Atlanta now are interlinked with situations not just across the Anglophone world, but of course across all different struggles um, in all different parts of the world. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, solidarity, not just across, you know, states, but across nations and across the global North and South is vitally important to any movement with any chance of success. And, you know, I'll disagree with you just a little bit on, on one thing you said, which is that, you know, anyone could win from the building of Cop City and the destruction of the force. And and I do believe that, you know, ultimately everybody loses, even, you know, the wealthy capitalists and whether, you know, they have short term benefits and their stock portfolios go up and they get to build another mansion like it ultimately doesn't matter when you're destroying the planet. Right. And so it's quite short term thinking, you know, that even they're engaging in these projects of destruction. And so we know that all of climate crisis is going to affect the people least responsible for it first. And so in that way, it is our duty in, in positions of relative power and wealth to do all that we can to, to not only slow down, but stop um, climate destruction. And you know, without the power of the state behind us, without the power of the wealthy corporations behind us, the only pathway to victory is solidarity and building mass movements, which is why Cobb City is so inspiring because we're bringing together you know, environmental activists. We're bringing together people who understand the history of policing and the purpose that it really solves. Mm. And we're bringing together people that care on all these different levels about issues related to poverty, related to environmental racism. And that is the way that I see a path to victory. And right now, you know, there's no 
force defenders remaining in the force. They've been cleared out. But in reality, you know, there's force defenders all across Atlanta. They're in the hospital. They're the bus drivers. You know, they're the food vendors. There's force defenders in all the different cities in the U.S. There's force defenders in London right now. And so the movement is is not ending uh, with the clearance of the force, but only just beginning. And I truly believe that. And I think that, you know, there is, you know, the opportunity to not only stop Cop City, but stop all of the Cop Cities and stop all of the environmental destruction um, that's, you know, leading us down this road of climate collapse for all of us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So just to finish off, let's let's kind of direct people towards where they can direct their solidarity and how they can kind of organize um, there's obviously the solidarity funds um, and there's the week of action that I believe is starting on March 4th. Could you kind of explain uh, where things are at and what people should look out for um, if they, you know, if they want to help, you know, beat this horrible project? Yeah, I think that, you know, um, you could probably post in the show notes, but there's um, one one kind of website that kind of puts polls together all of the different actions taking place and is defend the ATL um, sorry, defend the Atlanta yeah. and and that's where you'll see where all the events taking place globally will be taking place in March during a week of action. And we can link to that. And, you know, apart from that, another way that if you're able to contribute is contributing to, like you said, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which helps pay the the bails of the forest defenders and those charged with domestic terrorism who are bail eligible. Other things that are happening right now in the movement is that there's increasing pressure on the many board members of the Atlanta Police Foundation, um, getting them to try to step down. And so from a healthcare perspective, we're pushing for anyone affiliated with the large universities and hospitals in Atlanta to step down and shedding light on the fact that any any stated value of a research university or healthcare institution is just not compatible with the Atlanta Police Foundation or Cop City being built. And in addition to that, you know, people can push back against corporations, not only on the Atlanta Police Foundation, but all of the contractors that are building this project. And this has been successful in the past. We've had, you know, contractors step down um, because they don't want to, you know, deal with um, the the publicity around it. The um, And so con- uh, helping with contacting these contractors, letting them know what's going on and asking them to pull out of contracts to build Cop City um, is vitally important. You know, if we there's no one to build it, then it's not going to get built. Right. Mm-hmm. And apart from that, it's doing anything you can to just continue to spread awareness, you know, just doing podcasts like this, doing more public demonstrations, teachings, getting people to understand the intersection of the climate crisis, how the state will use the police to further climate destruction and repress social movements. Um, um, th- there's, you know, never the wrong time to to continue the political education in your own community. Thank you for listening to Rev Medicine and thank you for Mark for such a wonderful conversation. All the links that we mentioned in the conversation are in the show notes. Please do have a look and consider making use of them. Thanks again.
Thank <laughs> you.